0: Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single-barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, be 21.
1: Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with Mayuk Sen, who many of you longtime Food52 readers will remember from his beautiful writing on food and culture, which he has gone on to publish in places like The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The New Yorker, just to name a few. And, as of November 16th, you can find in a new form, in his brand new book, Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. The thread through most of Mayuk's work is in bringing light to underrepresented geniuses in food, and in such a vivid and empathetic way that in his book, I really felt as if I was in the kitchen, with Mexican chef Elena Zelayeta as she relearned to cook after losing her sight, and Marcella Hazan as she and her family carried their dinner plates to take shelter from air raids in World War II. It's a biographical style that you don't often see, and i found that it gave me such a deeper understanding of some of the authors who I have featured in Genius Recipes before, like Mother Joffrey and Madeline Common. And introduced me to others that I wish I'd known about sooner, like Chow Yang Buei, who first introduced terms like stir-fry into the English language in her book, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, in 1945. In this conversation, Mayuk gives us a peek inside the making of this book, and a springboard for finding more genius recipes and techniques from seven hugely influential women, who have not all been well-credited for their work until now. Here's Mayuk to tell you more about how his book came to be
0: it feels like a beautiful full circle moment uh, because it's been four years since i uh, left food 52 for another job so it feels like i'm coming home
1: (laughs) and now you have a book out
0: i know it's it's wild to me to think that i have a book out now and so much of it is derived from the work that i did at food 52
1: can you tell us a little bit more about how And if you remember any particular moments where you started being really drawn to this kind of work?
0: Absolutely. It's a great question. So for listeners who aren't familiar with what my book's about, it's called Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. And it's a group biography of seven different immigrant women who worked as chefs, uh, food writers, uh, restaurant owners, Um, some were all three of those things, and more, uh, who really uh, shaped and changed the way that Americans... uh, cook and eat today. And uh, this uh, narrative preoccupation started when I was back at Food52. So for anyone who isn't familiar with my circuitous path to food writing, (laughs) I can briefly talk about that. uh, Please. Yeah, so uh, back in 2016 is when I was hired by Food52 to be a staff writer. And prior to that, I had no experience at all in food writing. I had been a freelancer covering film and television and music you know everything but food basically all aspects of the culture but food when i got to Food 52 i felt very alone and confused at times and that had nothing to do with you know how welcoming people like kristen were you know when i first got there uh you know you were all so kind and wonderful to me yet i was uh the only person of color on the editorial staff back then and that was kind of reflective of just uh, the larger uh, food media industry which is mm-hmm. uh, you know for historically has been predominantly white and predominantly uh, you know straight <laughs> all that stuff and so i felt quite alone uh, just because i was writing from a different center of gravity than a lot of my immediate peers and my colleagues in the wider industry because I'm a queer person of color. I'm the child of Bengali immigrants. Uh, You know, I grew up speaking both English and Bengali as my first languages. So all of my memories surrounding food just felt so different from those of others kind of in my generation of budding food writers. Uh, So it was tough for me to find my footing at first when I got to Food 52. So one way I kind of metabolized a lot of that confusion was writing a bunch of personal essays. So I wrote this personal essay on fruitcake and, you know, what it means to me as someone who grew up eating it as a delicacy, even though the world around me taught me to hate it, you know, and how I felt about that word being both a gastronomic slur and a homophobic slur uh, relayed against me all the time. Uh, But in addition to that, I did a lot of reported profiles, usually posthumous profiles of Figures I felt were not sufficiently honored by the white food establishment or had not kind of made their way into cultural memory in the same way that figures like Julia Child or James Beard had. Uh, And a lot of those figures tended to be women of color, uh, you know, queer people of color, immigrants, immigrant women of color, you know, people who fell under all of these umbrellas. And I wanted to tell their stories with as much Fullness and care as possible. And part of the reason for me wanting to do that was to better understand why I was even doing what I was doing with my life. I just felt so alone in food media, you know, when I first got there. And so I looked to a lot of the stories of these people to be like, wow, you know, what did it look like for someone to enter an industry that is not necessarily designed to have room for them, but to create work that is so powerful That they get the establishment and other people who have power and capital and all that other good stuff, right, to listen to them and, you know, really change the way that they think about food. And so uh, there's something aspirational about a lot of these figures, which is why I was so drawn to telling their stories, just felt like a natural extension of the small body of work that I had begun amassing back at Food52.
1: Do you remember if there were any particular stories that you worked on or moments exploring those stories that made you think there could be a book in this?
0: You know, I I wrote quite a few stories uh, belonging to this micro-genre. I think the first one was, it wasn't a posthumous profile, it was actually a profile of the actress and food writer Mother Jeffrey, uh, whom, you know, I'm sure many listeners know and Mm -hmm. revere her like the rest of the world does and should. Yet I felt as though maybe at least from where I was sitting, you know, the fact that she was so passionate about acting and saw herself as both an actress and a food writer was not always being respected. I wrote that piece because I wanted to kind of capture the fullness of uh, who she was and how she saw herself and how she wanted to present herself to the world, you know? So that was kind of my first uh, swing at that sort of story that, you know, it wasn't necessarily taking a figure who uh, was... uh, anonymous to the public in any way. But, you know, I think that there may be aspects of her that were misremembered or could be more more understood, <laughs> for lack of better terms. So that was the first one. And then I kept on writing stories belonging to that genre. You know, I think the one that uh, most listeners uh, might know me for is this uh, piece I wrote on Princess Pamela. And this piece was published back in February 2017. Uh, so Princess Pamela was A soul food restaurateur who uh, spent most of her professional life in New York City and kind of what's today the East East Village and Alphabet City area. But she was originally from the South. She was a black woman uh, who came to New York uh, to pursue her culinary passions and You know, she had these marvelous, uh, reportedly marvelous, uh, you know, because I never went there, of course, um, soul food restaurants that, you know, really provided so much comfort to so many people, both from the American South and outside of it. And yet uh, in the late 90s, she kind of disappeared without a trace. And so what I wanted to do was, you know, kind of in writing the story tease out the competing theories as to what exactly happened to her and what became of her and why she did kind of fall off the map. Uh, But I also want to tell the larger story of, you know, who she was and what her legacy looks like within the culinary world, because to me, her literal disappearance also felt like a symbolic one regarding, you know, how bad American cultural memory is in, you know, honoring the contributions of black women in many cultural arenas, including uh, food So that was one piece that I think got some attention, which was uh, quite nice. And uh, I think that more people are really honoring her legacy, you know, uh, which is lovely to see.
1: I was wondering about that. These pieces where you're bringing attention to figures who haven't gotten it either for a very long time or maybe ever. Does you bring more attention, and in the case of Princess Pamela, winning a James Beard Award for it, does it bring out the people who may have known these figures to kind of, like, add more to the story just because you have brought them, you know, to light in wider food media?
0: One of the gratifying parts of this very challenging line of work is to get a note from a family member or a close friend of a deceased figure who's who basically tells me that, you know, I've done right by this person's story, you know, because... One of the reasons why I'm so attracted to the genre of posthumous profiling as what I call it is uh, because I love the idea of honoring a deceased person's memory as much as you can. You know, I've suffered so much loss in my life over the past few years. Uh, and I understand how fragile memory is when it comes to, you know, being able to recall what it was like to see someone out in the world and see how they Move through the world and how they spoke, you know, all their mannerisms, everything like that. It's all so fragile. So I think that writing has the power to kind of enshrine memory a little more.
1: Wow. Sorry. I don't really know what to say to that because it's just, it it really is so touching. The idea that families and communities who are are grieving someone who was important to them, that you can bring a bit of life and, and share their work with more people is is incredibly
0: moving. Thank you for seeing it that way. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: I've been really happy to hear that they feel as though I've, you know, really honored their story or their family member stories. That's really nice.
1: Hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this chat with Mayuk as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit follow so you don't miss out on other stories like this one. And like our recent conversation with Food52's Big Little Recipes columnist and author, Lot Peruk on the freedom of recipes with short ingredient lists, like None More Than Five Ingredients Short, and turning her column into the Big Little Recipes cookbook. In the second half of this episode, we get to hear more from Mayuk about what he learned from cooking alongside these women, whose lives he'd studied so deeply, and some of the records that he would like to set straight.
2: Meet you back here for that.
1: That does bring up the question for me of what it was like to work with the families of the women that you were profiling in your book. I believe you worked closely with some of them in in kind of like putting the pieces together of of what their their life and their story were along the way. But um, have you shared the things that you've written, like the chapters you've written about the women back with the families? And what was their reaction if you did?
0: My book stretches uh, from you know, World War II era to the present day. So family members of the subjects of my first two chapters, who are um, uh, Chao Yang Bue from China and uh, Elena Zalieta from Mexico, you know, uh, very few, if any, of their family members were still alive. So that was kind of uh, an impossible task to even contact these people, you know. Uh, but in the case of folks like... So Madeline Kamen is a really good example of this. So Madeline Kamen, if... uh People or listeners aren't familiar with her. She was an extraordinary uh, French cookbook author, restaurant owner, television host. I mean, she, she did it all, and she was incredible. Yet, you know, in her lifetime, she was unfortunately framed in such a way by the American food media that it was very antagonistic. You know, she was very outspoken against the American food establishment. And one particular target of a lot of her anger was Julia Child, because Madeline Cameron was from France, yet she always wondered... Uh, you know, why it was that, uh, you know, America had crowned this American woman as, you know, the authority on French cooking, you know, when there were other people who were actually born in France, like Madeleine herself, you know, who might be in a better position to earn that kind of title. And so as a result, what happened was, you know, so much of the press about Madeleine in her lifetime and the press that I encountered in my research for this book was just basically like, you know, in spite of all her achievements, she had you know a truckload of James Beard awards, everything like that. You know, many books to her name. She accomplished so much. All of that was secondary to the fact that she dared to call out Julia Child and others, you know, who were at the very top of the food establishment. And I spoke to her sons, uh, both of whom are alive because she died a few years back. And I was really appreciative of the fact that they just they were very open with me in talking about their mother and their memories of her. And they also said that, please make sure that you don't kind of repeat this mistake that we saw all the time, which was, you know, always framing her in terms of her (laughs) conflict, quote unquote, with Julia Child, because she was so much more than that.
1: That is something I'm curious about, too, that brings us back to what it was that you sought out to do with this book? And if that evolved at all, as you did dig into all of this research and talking to all of these people, you know, did it become something else? Or did it really stick to what you had envisioned for the book all along?
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. You know, I have to be completely honest here and say that, you know, when I sold this book in late 2018, I really didn't know what larger story I wanted to tell. I really just it's like okay these are going to be seven separate biographical essays and it's up to you through writing them to find the through line and kind of make a more meaningful statement about you know what you want to say about what it means to you know devote uh you know your whole life to food in america and you know make a living off of that uh so that was a big challenge I'm sure that many readers will pick up this book and be like, oh, I wonder how America became this glorious melting pot. Right. You know, I wonder how Mm -hmm. you can get sock paneer on one block and then you can get, you know, enchiladas on the next block, you know, like how did that happen? And, you know, that's great, but I want people to understand the struggle that was embedded in making that reality possible because this, you know, very rosy kind of picture of America as this just, you know, beautiful place where all cultures meet. And, you know, that's brilliantly expressed through, uh, you know, our food culture. It's something that I want to complicate a little bit. uh, Because, you know, when I had the idea for this book, uh, a few years back, you know, I was seeing a lot of talking points in food media that were akin to, you know, immigrants feed America and immigrants get the job done. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I understood the, uh, you know, seemingly good intentions behind such talking points, yet they felt so patronizing to me, because it felt as though immigrants were being dehumanized, you know, whether that was Mm -hmm. the intention or not, uh, you know, in that sort of um, phrasing, you know, and so I felt like the best way to work against that sort of trend was to tell individual immigrant stories from the ground up, you know, in the most granular, respectful way possible. Uh, and there are so many more brilliant women I could have written about in this book. Uh, you know, there's so much struggle involved in them uh, making this reality possible, as I said earlier. So that was a big reason, or that was a big, uh, you know, point that I wanted to make. Um, another one that I figured out kind of as I was writing is that, uh, assimilation is not the only path uh, towards success in America, at least uh, in the food industry. And this is something I kind of had to look inside myself to really understand and then apply to the book, you know, because a lot of the women I wrote about, they really wanted to succeed um, in material terms in America through their food, you know, and they wanted the validation that came from certain institutions like the New York times or the James Beard foundation or any of that kind of other stuff, you know, where, you know, once you get in front of those sorts of institutions, you know, capital comes much more easily for you, especially if you belong to marginalized communities. Right. Uh, but I'm really inspired by the stories of the women in my final two chapters, uh, Najme abad from Iran and Norma Shirley from Jamaica, because both were women who kind of resisted that path and instead, you know, forged a different path, you know, independent of the American food establishment. Uh, Najme Abad-Monglich came to America, you know, right after the Iranian revolution as a refugee and... It was right around the time of the Iranian hostage crisis. She tried to sell an Iranian cookbook to major American publishers, and everyone said no or just, you know, uh, politely just, like, did not respond to her. And so what did she do? She and her husband, Muhammad they established their own publishing house and decided, okay, we're just going to publish this book on our own. And, you know, now she has many cookbooks to her name. She's an absolute legend. But she started out, you know, like, kind of working outside of the food establishments, you know, very limited structure, and she was creating for her people. You know, she wrote that book initially for fellow Iranian refugees uh, in America. And Norma Shirley from Jamaica, you know, same similar deal where she, you know, she came to America and tried to uh, mount her own restaurant in uh, New York in the early 1980s. But it was extremely hard for her to secure investors and funding for her own uh, Jamaican restaurants. Um especially as a Black immigrant woman from the Caribbean. So she had to go back home uh, in the mid-80s to kind of realize her vision. And she realized it many times over. She opened many restaurants in her name that really just, you know, she was able to present her culinary vision without filter. But she had to, you know, go... She basically had to leave America for that to happen, you know? And so I I find it so... um, Again, inspiring in the same way that I found uh, Najmia's story inspiring in the sense that, you know, she found a lot of gratification in creating for her own people. Early on in my career, uh, you know, when I was at Food 52 I really wanted that validation of these white institutions. You know, I really, I wanted to create work that, you know, would get me the attention of the James Beard Awards uh, and, you know, get me in the New York Times and all these things and get me in Best American Food Writing uh, because I felt so alone and I felt like such a fraud, you know, a total imposter being in this field, right? And so I felt as though getting that sort of validation would uh, make me feel a little more secure. It took me a while to realize that all of achievements, you know, and the validation of certain institutions does not necessarily lead to long-term happiness and creative fulfillment. And I really realized that during the pandemic. And so I tried to kind of thread that sensitivity into the book itself. For a lot of these women, it did not involve the food establishment at all. And I hope that readers understand that the only path to success in the American food industry is not through assimilation, because it took me uh, far too long to realize that.
1: I wanted to hear from you, too, about why it was important to you not to include recipes in this book. And then also I want to hear about the choice to to run some of these excerpts um, or adapted excerpts in The New Yorker and the process of choosing recipes to run with those and what that was like for you.
0: When I was writing the proposal in 2018, I was like, should we include a recipe? I don't know. And different publishers I met with had different thoughts. You know, the more traditional food publishers were like, yeah, of course, a recipe makes sense, you know, because uh, I think that putting a recipe even in a narrative nonfiction food book, you know, it just feels like a bid for commercial viability and, you know... um, If you don't have recipes in a narrative nonfiction food book, you know, uh, you risk kind of uh, losing a big segment of the audience, right? But I was so happy to meet with my wonderful editor at Norton, Melanie Tortoroli, who does edit a lot of cookbooks um, in addition to other kinds of uh, nonfiction works. And she said, I don't think that recipes are quite right for this book because I don't think that's the kind of writer you are. And I don't think that we need recipes to legitimize each woman's story. And I was like, yes, I agree choosing one recipe for each woman feels uh flattening almost it's like i can't condense Mm -hmm. this vast body of work and this genius mind (laughs) haha genius um (laughs) i did not plan that (laughs) Um, (laughs) this genius mind to you know one recipe and isn't it more productive to maybe you know write these chapters in a way that will hopefully compel readers to seek out these women's cookbooks on their own, because so many of these cookbooks are out of print and they should not be. And I would love for my book to make the kind of impact where, you know, they are so inspired by certain women's stories that they're like, oh, I'm going to look up Elena Zelieta's book now, or, oh, I'm going to hunt for this other cookbook that, you know, went out of print in the 80s, you know, and then kind of revive this, uh, you know, text that really deserves, you know, very long afterlife. When it comes to my New Yorker, uh, you know, excerpts, so I have a column, um, ongoing column on the New Yorker web of excerpts from my book, and they're very small excerpts, but each one has a recipe attached to them. Um, It's been a fun challenge, actually, figuring out, okay, you know, what, what recipe here makes sense with this woman's story? You know, what can this tell us about, you know, how this woman uh, kind of approached, uh, you know, the way that she thought about food and writing for, you know, a certain audience or cooking for a certain audience, etc. cetera. Um, and so I really am thinking of it in terms of what is going to be the most compelling in narrative terms. So for example, this, uh, excerpt hasn't run yet, but, um, the plan right now for, um, my Marcella Hazan uh, chapter excerpt, uh, which will most likely be running next month, is to run this uh, recipe for, I think it was a, it's a cauliflower gratin with a uh, bechamel sauce. The aforementioned Judith Jones and Marcella Hazan, you know, they did have working relationship and that working relationship was allegedly from, you know, the recollections of, of both parties, uh, pretty tough. Uh, and kind of caustic it seems uh from judging from both women's memoirs and this recipe was a particular point of contention because uh, according to Marcella Hazan you know in um her memoir she said that the inclusion of this recipe in uh, one of her earlier cookbooks, uh, made Judith Jones be like, what, what's so Italian about this? So what are you talking about? And Marcella really put her foot down, allegedly, and said, no, it is Italian, let me show you. And I think that, you know, that recipe just says so much about, you know, Marcella's spirit and, you know, how she was a very forthright person who had values and stood by them quite firmly, no matter, what kinds of enemies it made her. Um, And it also tells us about the limits of the American imagination when it comes to thinking of uh, dishes from quote-unquote national cuisines.
1: What was it like to cook alongside these women for the New Yorker pieces after just being so intimate with their lives in so many other ways? Did that reveal anything to you?
0: So, uh, yeah, cooking these recipes uh, for the New Yorker column uh, has definitely been revealing in terms of uh, showing me kind of who these uh, women were writing or creating for. So, for example, uh, with my first excerpt in the New Yorker, on Madeline Kammen. Uh, you know, we ran this fig tart, which, you know, was not labeled as too difficult, yet it was difficult for someone like me, you know? And so I think that uh, it reveals a lot about kind of the rigor that someone like Madeline Kamen, who really took cooking so seriously, it reveals a lot about the rigor that she expected of her readers, you know, and maybe the skill level that she anticipated, uh, people who you know, picked up her, uh, you know, cookbooks would have. But, you know, that's just one recipe, you know. Um, In the case of Norma Shirley, um, she did not have any cookbooks to her name. But, you know, there were kind of recipes of hers that were scattered throughout different cookbooks on Caribbean cooking, generally, and also Jamaican cooking specifically. And so we chose one from a Jamaican cookbook that was for her fricassee chicken. And it was, you know, kind of a traditional Jamaican dish that uh, she served at uh, one of her restaurants. And uh, I have to say, you know, it was actually not too difficult for me to pull off. And maybe that speaks to the fact that Norma Shirley herself was someone who was almost entirely self-taught when it came to cooking. You know, Uh, she was like, many of these other women in my book, you know, were people who didn't necessarily uh, seek out a formal culinary education. That was mostly the case with someone like Norma Shirley, you know, and I felt as though she was writing um, this recipe for an idiot like me, you know, (laughs) which is great. Um, So, uh, yeah, it really kind of runs the gamut, uh, you know, in terms of kind of um, whom these uh, women were writing and creating for.
1: Thanks for listening, and my thanks to Mayuk Sen, the author of the brand new book, Tastemakers, which you can pre-order now and find at your local bookstore on November 16th. This week's show was put together by Coral Lee, Amy Schuster, and Emily Hanhan. If you have a Genius Recipe, especially from an unsung recipe writer, I would always love to hear from you at genius GeniusAtFood52.com. And if you like the Genius Recipe tapes and the Food 52 Podcast Network, the very best thing that you can do to support us and to help other people find the show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating or review, or send this episode to someone who loves trolling through vintage cookbooks and will appreciate learning more about the geniuses behind them. Thanks so much. Talk to you
0: next week.